back to another episode of the JT Sports Podcast. Happy Feel Good Friday, man. Well, I don't know if you're a fan of the Pac-12, if you're feeling good right now with the recent news that has just came out with Washington and Oregon departing for the Big Ten. We got to talk about that. I'm also going to be giving my overall thoughts on the future of the Pac-12 conference. Unfortunately, I think that the Pac-12 is done. I'm going to be giving you guys my NFL Hall of Fame game takeaways, training camp updates. We're going to be talking about a lot of things on today's episode, man. Very jam-packed. Before we get into it, make sure that you go ahead, leave a like, and subscribe to the channel. Remember that you can listen to the audio version of the JT Sports Podcast available on all podcasting platforms. We are not just available on YouTube. You can find us on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcast from, you can find the JT Sports Podcast. Rate us five stars if you enjoyed today's episode. We are trying to get to 100 five-star reviews before the start of the college football and NFL season. So if you enjoyed today's episode and you want to support the podcast, leave us with a five-star review. Apple, Spotify, all you got to do is go down to the description down below, scroll down a little bit, and you will see the links to the Apple and Spotify versions of the podcast. Or you can go type in the JT Sports Podcast and it will pop up Washington and Oregon are leaving the Pac-12 for the Big Ten and this was pretty much expected to happen it wasn't a matter of if it was a matter of when and for Washington and Oregon we obviously knew that they weren't going to stay around in the Pac-12 there were some rumors that came out earlier this morning that said that they were considering staying in the Pac-12 but we pretty much knew that was a bunch of nonsense with the apparent new media rights deal that the Pac-12 is trying to negotiate with Apple TV. It isn't really guaranteeing any money that's going to be more than what Washington or Oregon will make in the Big Ten or any other conference like the Big 12 or the SEC. And this is a big get for the Big Ten Conference. You have two really good football programs and also two basketball programs that I think also have pretty high potential as well. Washington is in a pretty big media market. Oregon, I don't really know if they have a large media market or not, but I do know that they have a very large and passionate fan base when it comes to college football, and they have a lot of money up there. They pour a lot of resources into their football facilities, and they have a lot of incredible uniform combinations. So, Watching Oregon and Washington playing in the Big Ten is going to be really fun and entertaining. We get to see them going up against Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan. And you already know, Oregon has Ohio State's number. And Washington has kind of already done a little bit of damage to the Big Ten in the past, given how they blew out Michigan State not too long ago. And I think that these are two programs that have the potential to be powerhouses in the conference like the Big Ten. Michigan, Ohio State, they are already established, but Oregon and Washington, they're already on the come up, and they recruit very well at a very high level, and they got two young coaches who are having their programs going in the right direction very fast. Kalen DeBoer, Dan Lanning, two second-year head coaches, 
have their programs in prime spots to make a giant leap into potentially being a consistent national championship contender. Dan Lanning was fantastic year one at Oregon. He comes from Georgia. He served as Kirby Smart's defensive coordinator for a while. He's a really good recruiter. Kalen DeBoer was the former head coach at Fresno State prior to last year. He has been known for being able to be really good on the offensive side of football, and that was evident with how he was able to rehabilitate Michael Penix last season. So it's going to be really exciting thinking about the potential matchups that we're going to see with Washington and Oregon inside of the Big Ten. And they already follow their former Pac-12 brethren and UCLA and USC to the conference. The Pac-12, the West Coast is now starting to invade the Big Ten. And the Big Ten continues their conference expansion westward. They get into some more West Coast media markets, like I said, you already know Washington has a pretty big media market. We don't know how big Oregon's is, but these are two teams that should generate a lot of revenue. They have pretty massive fan bases, and their fans are really supportive of their programs, regardless if they're having a great year or a down year. And for the Pac-12, you know, just as... This is just really unfortunate for them. And we're going to dive into them a little bit, but I also want to talk about the potential of what Washington and Oregon can be in the Big Ten. Are they going to be able to be good enough to compete with Ohio State and, you know, some of the other juggernauts in this conference, such as Michigan? I believe so. USC is going to be right up there as well. These schools just recruit way too well. For them not to be a factor in the Big Ten, if you think that the Big Ten is just going to beat up on these West Coast teams because they're from the West Coast, you got another thing coming. Let's not act like Oregon didn't just give Ohio State the beats not too long ago when many people thought that Oregon had no chance in that game. And Oregon just completely dominated Ohio State up front. So Ohio State has struggled with Oregon, and these are both two programs that have appeared in the college football playoff over the past decade. Oregon was in the inaugural college football playoffs, and Washington went a couple of years after that when they lost to Alabama in the semifinals. These are two really good programs, two highly respected programs in the Big Ten that have the ability to be able to compete with the better teams in this conference, and they can also be able to win the Big Ten on any given year. The Big Ten just got incredibly more talented. They have added more depth. And around this time next year, or whenever Washington and Oregon become official members of the Big Ten, you probably are going to be able to make a legitimate argument that maybe the Big Ten will be a better conference than the SEC because they probably are going to have better overall depth in terms of the quality of teams that they're going to have at their conference versus the SEC. And even if they're not better, the gap between the Big Ten and the SEC from a college football standpoint in terms of talent is going to be incredibly smaller than what it is right now. The Big Ten, they had their eyes on Washington and Oregon. There were some reports about them wanting to add them to the conference dating back to last year, but There were a little bit of some 
issues with, you know, not wanting to add too many teams at one time and not really having a good idea of how many teams they want to add to the conference and if they wanted to further expand after adding UCLA and USC. But this was pretty much a fire sale for the Big Ten. You remember when Kmart was going out of business and you saw those big clearance signs, hey, everything is 60, 70 percent off, everything has to go. This is what this was for the Big Ten. It was a clearance sale. They got an opportunity to get two really good programs. And the fact that the Pac-12 can't find a way to get a proper media rights deal gave Oregon and Washington all the ammunition that they needed to leave the Pac-12 conference. The Big Ten, this conference just got better. They got more teams in terms of depth and quality that are going to be able to compete for the Big Ten title and not just being optimistic. This is something that can actually happen. Anytime you recruit at the level that Oregon and Washington do consistently, you're going to be up there with the Ohio States and the Michigans of the world. If you're somebody who's a fan of the Big Ten and you don't really know all that much about Oregon and Washington and where they are as programs, just know that these programs, when they really get rolling, there are going to be some juggernauts when it comes to recruiting, and they recruit better than Michigan already. Michigan recruits at a pretty high level, but they don't recruit at the kind of level that Oregon and Washington are capable of when they're rolling on all cylinders. Big 10 just got better. Washington and Oregon joined the conference. Let me know how you guys feel about this. The Pac-12 conference. With Washington and Oregon officially leaving the conference, Arizona getting membership into the Big 12, I think it's safe to say Donnell has been put in the coffin for the Pac-12. And I'm really sad about this. I'm not somebody who's from the West Coast. I'm from the East Coast. And I'm a big fan of the Pac-12 conference because I'm a fan of college football. So I love the fact that I can still watch football after 12 a.m., and still be fairly entertained because the Pac-12 had some really good teams last year and some really great games. Oregon State-Washington was one of the most underrated games of the whole entire college football season, and yet nobody really talks about how great that game was because it was played at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and not without Pac-12 after dark. Where the hell am I going to get my post-midnight college football fix from? You telling me? I got to settle with the Big Sky Conference or settle watching the Mountain West Conference after 12 a.m.? I'd rather not. I'd rather not. I'd rather the Pac-12 not have any of this happen, keep this conference the way it used to be prior to, you know, what it's going to look like in the future. I'm a little bit hurt for this. Honestly, because quietly over the last two, three years, I've become a big fan of the Pac-12 conference. And this conference is going to be one of the most competitive in all of college football this year because the majority of the best quarterbacks in college football play in this conference this year. Caleb Williams, Shadur Sanders, Bo Nix, Michael Penix, Cam Ward, Cam Rising. This is a really underrated conference that... Not too many people are talking about when it comes to how the performance is going to be on the field on Saturdays. We're talking about the Pac-12 in terms of conference realignment and the fact that this conference is done. You can blame Larry Scott 
for the majority of the reasons for why the Pac-12 is where it is right now. And yes, we will do that. They whiffed on the opportunity when they had a chance to add Texas and Oklahoma to this conference. They couldn't really negotiate a proper media rights deal. They had the opportunity to pretty much get rid of the Pac-12 network and give it to ESPN. They didn't want to do that. The Pac-12 has just been a complete disappointment from not just the on the field standpoint because the quality of play kind of has went down in this conference over the last couple of years. But not just that, but the attention that this conference gets it's kind of at an all-time low. And you can blame George Kalkoff as well, even though I'm not going to put a lot of blame on him. He deserves a little bit of the blame. I don't think it's fair to point all the criticism on him and really give him too much criticism for what's transpiring because he pretty much was brought in to captain the already sinking ship. When George Kakoff took over as the Pac-12 commissioner, he pretty much was taking over the Titanic once it hit the iceberg. There were a couple of leaks. He tried to patch those leaks, but eventually those leaks just became too big. And now we got the Pac-12 sinking below water, and then it's going to eventually perish. And if you think that SMU, San Diego State, and Boise State are going to be enough to save this conference, you're delusional. All you're doing by adding those schools is just adding teams to the conference, pretty much. You're not going to get a respectable, a respectable media rights deal like the other top conferences in college football, like the Big Ten, the Big 12, and the SEC are, having schools like SMU and San Diego State, Oregon State, and Washington State being your main draws. You think anybody's going to want to watch those teams every single week unless they're a fan? No. So the Pac-12 is done. As far as them being a Power 5 conference, they're officially done. Now, as far as what's going to happen to this conference, is it going to perish? Is it going to find a way to stay alive? I'm pretty sure this conference is done. If it's not done after this season, it probably is going to be done within two or three years. I don't really think there's too many things the Pac-12 can do unless they want to merge with the Mountain West Conference. Maybe you just go ahead and merge with the Mountain West Conference. You tell those Mountain West teams, come over here, we'll just merge, and then we'll negotiate and work on getting a media rights deal with those teams added to the equation. But for Oregon State and Washington State, where are you going to head? Because you're not going to be able to get into the Big Ten because there are certain requirements that your school just doesn't fit to get admitted into that conference. And we don't know if the Big 12 is going to want to pick you up because they already are going to be looking to add Utah and the Four Corner Schools, which they already have two of those already in Colorado and Arizona, who recently just got membership into the Big 12. I think Oregon State and Washington State Sadly, you're probably going to be headed for the Mountain West. And it's really sad that Oregon State, with the way this program has kind of come back to relevancy under their head coach over the last couple of years, and the fact that this is a program that definitely is on the rise, that they have to go through this. And same thing for Washington State. I think that they're headed in a pretty good direction. But I think on the bright side, if you're a fan of the Beavers or the Cougars, 
even though the college football playoff is a very long times away from this compared to the opportunity that you had of getting into the college football playoffs in the Pac-12 versus the opportunity you will have in the Mountain West, you're going to have an increased opportunity of being able to reach the postseason because with the college football playoffs expanding, remember that the highest ranked G5 school gets an automatic bid into the the postseason. So with the 12-team college football playoffs, let's say Oregon State or Washington State win the Mountain West Conference, they're still going to have an opportunity to compete for a national championship. So just because there will be switching conferences and going to a lesser conference that doesn't get a lot of attention still doesn't mean that their path to being a national contender is, you know, eliminated. And that's the good thing about college football playoff expansion is that G5 schools got a better shot at getting into the postseason and getting more national attention. But the Pac-12 conference, man, the Big Ten, the Big 12, they are just absolutely eating this conference alive, man. It's a fire sale out there. It's a clearance sale. They got a big clearance sale or they got like a big yard sale sign that says, hey, everything has to go. Come take it off our hands. And for George Karkoff, man, like, I wonder what his reaction is. Anytime he sees news that Colorado's leaving, USC's leaving, Washington's leaving, it's like, damn, like, do you know how demoralizing that has to be for a commissioner of a conference to just continue to see your conference crumble apart? I mean, the Pac-12 pretty much is detonating right now. There are bonds being set off left and right by the Pac-12. Every minute, it's a boom, then it's a boom, like this thing is just imploding at a really high rate, and at this point, you know Colorado and Arizona are gone, who else is going to leave for the Big 12, I mean, the Pac-12 right now, I don't see how they're going to survive this, now maybe they can find a way to get Clemson and FSU to get out of the ACC and maybe they can work on getting a couple of other schools and maybe they can add a couple of big name schools to their conference. They could get more leverage when it comes to getting what they want and their TV rights deal. But that's really, you know, uh, that's kind of how, that's, that's having low faith in the Pac-12, honestly. Because the Pac-12, let's just face it, man, if you're FSU or Clemson, why would you want to leave the ACC and go to the Pac-12, even if they do promise that they're going to be able to give you more annual dollars? I mean, why would you join that conference when it kind of already is a sinking ship and they don't really have any other members there? So if you're thinking that maybe the Pac-12 could maybe get FSU and Clemson and a couple of other schools and try to get a media rights deal that way, I don't really think it'll play out that way. I think that if you're Florida State, you rather go to the SEC or the Big Ten. You're FSU. Why would you go to a conference like the Pac-12, who hasn't really shown a lot of ability to be able to get these teams the money that they deserve and the money that they should be paid? I mean, there's no reason schools like USC, Oregon, and Washington should be getting less money in the Pac-12 than what schools like Vanderbilt and Rutgers and Northwestern are and bigger conferences. I love the Pac-12 being somebody who is born 
and raised on the East Coast. I've loved watching the Pac-12 growing up. One of my favorite memories of this conference was watching the Anthony Thomas go off at Oregon, Marcus Mariota win the Heisman Trophy, Christian McCaffrey when he had his outstanding years at Stanford. Hell, I remember when Stanford used to be a good football program. I remember when David Shaw was probably the most underrated and most underappreciated coach in college football. That's how long I've been a fan of the Pac-12 Conference, and I've grown even more fond of this conference over the last couple of years, being a college student, being bored on my Saturday nights, having nothing else better to do but watch Pac-12 after dark. So I'm going to be a little bit disappointed when the Pac-12 ends up perishing eventually, if it does, because I don't know where I'm going to get my after 12 a.m. football fix from. It's like, I'm blessed because I love football. You guys who listen to the podcast on a normal basis know that we don't just cover college football, but we also cover the NFL. So I love the fact that I can wake up at 11 o'clock, turn on a college football game at 12 p.m., and watch college football all the way from noon to 3 a.m. in the morning, Sunday morning, and then go to sleep and wake up at 12 and turn on the NFL and watch that from 1 p.m. all the way until the ending of the Sunday night football game. So that's like 40-something hours of football that I get to watch, and now with the Pac-12 eventually about to be extinct, you know, where am I going to get that from? I'm not going to be watching no FCS Big Sky schools. I'm sorry, no disrespect to the Big Sky, but I want to see some some really big name schools going at it you know no disrespect to those fcs schools because they do have some pretty big fan bases up there in the big sky but you know i just really loved watching the pac-12 after dark man there were so many great games that were played that nobody really talked about because how late the games were so for the pac-12 man they just completely dropped the bomb larry scott you know, he's the reason mostly for the Pac-12 being in this situation, didn't really care too much about the football aspect of things or didn't really have a lot of understanding of how important football was to the Pac-12. According to multiple people out there, Larry Scott kind of put his attention in sports that weren't really that important when it came to generating revenue. And I'm not really somebody who digs in deep into the history of these commissioners, but I do remember Larry Scott because he is somebody who has been heavily criticized. And anytime you got a commissioner of any conference that's heavily criticized, it normally tells you that that conference isn't in a good state. I'm really disappointed about what's happened to the Pac-12. This truthfully was one of my favorite conferences to watch. And I apologize to all of the college football traditionalists out there. Because, you know, around this time last year when expansion was really starting to heat up and all those traditionalists were getting upset because they were like, man, this sport isn't what it used to be anymore, man. Like, I hate where college football is at. And I came on here and made fun of you guys. I said that you guys were old heads that were just stuck in the past. You needed to get with the times. But now thinking about this and talking about it, you guys had a point. You feel me? Like, even though it's still going to be college football on Saturdays, you know, it's just a little bit different when you turn on a Pac-12 game. You feel me? And you get to see Oregon playing Oregon State. 
the rivalry game. You know, you get to see Washington and Washington State and the Apple Cup. You remember Utah, UCLA? That was a fantastic game. Like, this low-key has been one of the most underrated conferences in college football over the last year, man. And it's kind of crazy that a lot of these teams were starting to peak back up. This conference has been down for a couple of years due to a lot of these schools, you know, making the wrong decisions with their head coaching hires and kind of trending downwards. But the Pac-12, their stock was kind of trending up. And I was kind of having a little bit of optimism that maybe they could find a way to get what they want in the sense to try to keep Oregon and Washington around and try to appease those schools from a financial standpoint. And you do have to blame ESPN and, you know, FS1 for a little bit of this because the TV rights deals are a big reason for why the Pac-12 is at this state. And these schools got to get paid. You can't really get mad at these schools because they got to do what they got to do to get as much money for their universities as possible. And some of the money that they get from these TV deals, they end up using to put back into the program or they use to allocate to expenses when it comes to recruiting. The Pac-12, man, is not good. I think that this is the final knockout blow for this conference, man. And if you're a Pac-12 truther and you've watched this conference, you grew up on this conference, I now understand where a lot of you college football traditionalists are coming from. You know, just when you grow up on something and it changes, it just doesn't feel the same when you watch it. You know, it's going to be weird as hell. I don't care what anybody says. We are all excited to see the Big Ten with all their new members that they've gotten from the Pac-12. But let's just be honest about this. It isn't going to feel a little bit weird to you seeing USC playing Michigan with a Big Ten emblem on the back of their helmets. Come on, please tell me that just doesn't seem just a little bit weird to you seeing that. Like... You know, you traditionalists had a point, man. I still am a big fan of college football. This still doesn't really change how I feel about college football in general. It's just that I'm just a little bit hurt about what's going on with the Pac-12, a conference that I've really grown to be really fond of and really like to cover over the last couple of years. But you guys, put your RIPs down in the comment section down below. Let's give a moment of silence to the Pac-12 conference before we move on. All right, before we move on, if you haven't already, go ahead, leave a like, subscribe to the channel. We go live every day, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern. Remember that you can listen to the audio version of this podcast available on all podcasting platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find the JT Sports Podcast and follow us on all of our social media platforms, man. Connect with us. I want to talk to y'all. You can find us on Instagram at JT Sports underscore on X at JT Sports underscore underscore. I know you still see the Twitter logo there. We're about to get that changed over the next couple of days, but follow us on those platforms. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Submit your questions. If you have anything, any feedback, we would greatly appreciate it.
I want to give my NFL Hall of Fame game takeaways between the New York Jets and the Cleveland Browns. I was really impressed, first of all, with Demarcus Ware's singing ability. When they announced that he was going to be performing the national anthem, I was like, huh? Isn't Demarcus Ware a singer? It's really a singer out here named Demarcus Ware. I was like, who the hell is a singer named Demarcus Ware? And then all of a sudden, they showing Demarcus Ware singing the national anthem. I'm like, oh, this Demarcus Ware. And I'm just thinking, damn, this dude is a doggone good singer. He sung the national anthem really well. And the fact that he did it for Demarius Thomas made it even more fulfilling to listen to. Now, when it comes to the game itself, obviously, we got to talk about the star player of this game, Dorian Thompson Robinson, DTR, shout out to the UCLA Pac-12 alum, DTR for balling out in the NFL Hall of Fame game, man. And I think with his performance, he probably has opened the door for himself being involved in the backup quarterback competition with Joshua Dobbs. Now, I love Joshua Dobbs. But with the way Dorian Thompson Robinson played, you got to give him an opportunity to compete for that backup QB spot. It's only right. And Dorian Thompson Robinson, I don't think his performance was all that surprising to people who really keep up with the draft. If you are somebody who follows the NFL draft heavily, you would know that most NFL draft analysts and experts consider Dorian Thompson Robinson to be what people like to call a diamond in a rough prospect. That means that Dorian Thompson Robinson, although he may not be a starting caliber QB right now, he eventually could be molded and developed into a really solid one. He has a really good arm. He's a great athlete. And we saw all that on display in the NFL Hall of Fame game. He had a couple of runs that were really impressive. He had 36 rushing yards. He also had some really nice passes. He was 8 of 11, 82 yards through the air, 7.5 yards per attempt in the passing touchdown, which is really impressive considering that when you play in the preseason, you're playing with guys you don't really have a lot of chemistry or timing with, and most of these wide receivers aren't really good. They can't separate. They can't run good routes it's just a mess anytime you're trying to have a productive day throwing the football in the preseason from a quarterback standpoint if you're not playing with the ones or the twos but Dorian Thompson Robinson made the most of the situation and even Kellen Mond I felt like he wasn't too bad neither but Dorian Thompson Robinson obviously stole the show and what was even more impressive was the block that he put on that one Jets defender that led to the Cleveland Browns scoring the touchdown. That shows a lot of heart. That shows a lot of character. And if you're Kevin Stefanski, man, this is one of the kind of players that you want to keep around just because he's good to have in the locker room. Dorian Thompson Robinson, he comes from UCLA under Chip Kelly, who was running a pro-style offense there. So the transition from college to the pros hasn't been that difficult for him. And Dorian Thompson Robinson, I'm eager to see how he plays in the next preseason game. Because in the preseason, normally you will have a hard time finding consistent quarterback play from guys who are backups. If you have a starting quarterback battle, then it's a little bit different. But most of the time, the guys who are competing for the backup quarterback job or the last QB spot on the roster, 
They don't really have consistent performances week in and week out because sometimes they may end up having to play with guys who, you know, last week, maybe they were on the fourth string. Now they're getting moved up and getting rest with the second string just to see how they look with that unit. You know, it's just really hard to establish a good rapport in the preseason. So for Dorian Thompson Robinson to have the performance that he did, it was really impressive. The Browns also showed us that they got a lot of depth at running back. Now, I was really disappointed that they didn't unleash Jerome Ford in this game. I would have loved to see Jerome Ford play in this matchup. Jerome Ford has been making a lot of noise so far throughout training camp for the Cleveland Browns, and he's a monster. I feel like he was a reason why Kareem Hunt wasn't brought back. He was their insurance option for Kareem Hunt the whole time as soon as they drafted him last year but Demetric Felton was really good he showed pretty good vision he has a good amount of wiggle to him he was averaging over six yards per carry and not just him but the majority of the running backs for the Browns who got legitimate carries in this game all of them Averaged over four yards per carry John Kelly 4.2 yards per carry Hassan Hall 6.8 yards per carry that's really impressive because in the preseason you don't really get great offensive line play and you don't really have offensive lines that create a lot of gaping holes for you to have success running the football but the Cleveland Browns had a lot of success with the ground and pound against the New York Jets their running back position is really stacked and it's going to be hard having to make a decision to get rid of any one of these guys if you have to cut one of these guys to make space for another position on the field but I think that John Kelly really was good Demetric Felton really impressed me Hassan Hall was really solid now when we move on to the New York Jets I was really impressed with their young pass rushers they have a lot of potential when it comes to what they have at edge rusher you got Jermaine Johnson who was a first round pick last year out of Florida State super athletic has a insane first step this dude is a crazy athlete but if you thought that Jermaine Johnson was a freakish athlete you ain't see nothing when it comes to Will McDonald who was another first round pick but from this past year's draft out of Iowa State and I'm not going to lie to you guys. I kind of forgot a little bit about Will McDonald. I remember around this time last year going into the 2022 college football season, there were a good amount of mock drafts who had him going in the top 10. And not just were there mock drafts that had him going in the top 10, there were even some mock drafts that thought he could get drafted higher than Will Anderson. Now, obviously, his draft stock kind of fell a little bit because Iowa State wasn't that good, but he was still holding up his end of the bargain. Will Anderson was a monster, but Will McDonald, he was a monster too. And I was really impressed with what I saw out of him last night. I mean, this guy can jump. I mean, the first play, he was in the game. He was already humming at the quarterback. I was like, damn. And uh, my guy, Artie, Scott for film is art. I was like, man, you you remember Will McDonald? This dude is an insane athlete. I mean, Will McDonald, this dude was moving, fam. He was moving. Please, please don't let him figure it out. Because if he does, he could be one of the best pass rushers in the NFL. This dude was insane. And the fact that they have him in Jermaine Johnson on the same team is even scarier 
Now, lastly, of course, we got to talk about Zach Wilson. Now, I wasn't all that blown away from what I saw out of Zach Wilson because he didn't really have a lot of reps. He only threw five passes, and his best pass was a deep ball that went for 57 yards, and that was a really great throw by him. I was really impressed with that throw, but I was a little bit disappointed because I thought he was going to be out there for a little bit longer. I mean, to do this, the backup quarterback, and you just don't want to give up on him already. You brought in Aaron Rodgers with a little bit of hope that maybe him being in the building around Zach Wilson will be able to rub off on him, and hopefully that gives Zach Wilson a little bit more time to improve and he can learn from Aaron Rodgers. I don't think he's going to get traded. And for the New York Jets, even if you are looking at, you know, trading Zach Wilson, you would kind of want to give him a little bit more time to show what he can do to make him more appealing for teams who maybe consider looking at Zach Wilson as an option to come in and see if they can rehabilitate him. So he probably will get more significant action in the next preseason game, but I kind of feel like this was a missed opportunity for the New York Jets to really give Zach Wilson some meaningful reps to improve and develop, man. Like, you only threw him out there for, what, two, three series? Seriously? Like, Zach Wilson, I thought was at least going to get the whole first quarter and then half of the second quarter. You feel me? Because, I mean, this dude is kind of viewed as a bust right now. So he should be getting all the opportunities he can get of getting meaningful in-game reps. Rather, if it's the preseason or exhibition game or a scrimmage, like whenever the New York Jets play some football and it's 11 on 11 and it kind of simulates a Sunday Phil, Zach Wilson should be in there getting meaningful playing time and a lot of it because he needs it. He needs to get better. And the only way Zach Wilson is going to get better is by playing more football. So I didn't understand why the New York Jets didn't have him in action for a lot longer. I mean, Chris Trevler, the guy who came in last in the, you know, the end of the game to close it out. He replaced Zach Wilson at one point last season. I mean, bro, like, you don't really need to see anything out of your third string QB. Like, yeah, you want to give them a little bit of reps, but Zach Wilson should have gotten way more playing time, man. This is somebody who you invested a top five pick in. You need to see what you got in that, man. If I was Robert Sala, I would have had Zach Wilson playing for at least the first quarter and a half because he's a bust. At least at this moment, we need to see what we got in him, man. So him playing for... The plays that he was in for disappointed me. I wanted to see a little bit more, which is why I'm not all that blown away by his performance because it was a small sample size. You just gave us a free sample, fam. You pretty much went to the mall. You got us a small thing of chocolate and you said, hey, you want a taste? And you gave us a taste and you was kind of teasing us, bruh. Like, after he made that big throw and Aaron Rodgers was on the sideline going crazy, bruh, like, he should have stayed in the game longer. He should have showed that he could do it more consistently, man. But these are my NFL Hall of Fame game takeaways. Let me know some takeaways and reactions that you guys have to this game down in the comment section down below. Training camp update for the Chicago Bears, man. Justin Fields and DJ Moore, these boys look unstoppable. Every time you read or hear a training camp report, about the Chicago Bears, you're always hearing about the Justin Fields to DJ Moore connection. It has been unstoppable so far. DJ Moore cannot be guarded by any cornerback on the Chicago Bears roster. 
He was riling up Jalen Johnson. He's been giving rookie cornerback Tyreek Stevenson hell. And there was a clip really early into training camp for the Chicago Bears that made some waves on social media where DJ Moore got a great pass from Justin Fields and they got caught for a touchdown on Tyreek Stevenson. And then he also, a couple of days ago, had another big play where he took a five-yard slant pretty much to the crib. DJ Moore has been as good as advertised. And we expected DJ Moore to be having this kind of performance in training camp. And for DJ Moore, he's in a situation where Justin Fields, he may have a lot to prove this year, but I think it is fair to say that Justin Fields is probably the second best quarterback that DJ Moore has probably played within his NFL career. Now, if you want to say Teddy Bridgewater is better than Justin Fields, at least at this moment, I will understand that. I still would go with Justin Fields over Teddy Bridgewater, but I think that Justin Fields, his development has been pretty apparent. If you don't think that Justin Fields has improved as a passer, judging from what we've seen and what we've heard about him in training camp, then I honestly don't really know what to tell you. If you're one of those people who only care about what you see during the regular season, cool. But I think that some people do a disservice to Justin Fields because they don't really contextualize everything that he had around him last season, which was nothing. His best reliable targets were Cole Komet, who didn't really come on until the second half of last year, and Darnell Mooney, who got injured late during the season. He was throwing to Equinamia St. Brown, Dante Pettis, and Chase Claypool, who didn't really get anything going after he got traded from Pittsburgh. I don't think too many people talk about the situation that Justin Fields had last year. He pretty much was Chicago's best weapon on offense. Not just was he their starting quarterback, but he was their best weapon on the offense. So it's good to see Justin Fields out there showing a lot of improvement. His accuracy and the short intermediate ranges of the field have definitely been talked about a lot. He throws a really good deep ball, but his short accuracy and his ability to throw the intermediate passes with a lot of accuracy and position or position, excuse me, has been a struggle of his. That has been a big improvement that he's made this year so far throughout training camp. And he also has looked more comfortable in the pocket. Justin Fields, this dude is one of the best running quarterbacks in recent memory just as good as Lamar Jackson and in training camp, he hasn't been utilizing his legs all that much because he's been killing it from throwing inside of that pocket, which is obviously something that you love to see if you're a Chicago Bears fan. And plus, you don't really want your quarterback running all that much anyway. Yes, Justin Fields has a lot of God-given ability and he does need to use that athleticism. It would be dumb of him not to. But if he wants to be the long-term answer at quarterback for the Chicago Bears for 10-plus years, he has to run less so he can take less hits on his body. He already has struggled with injuries. He missed some time last year due to injuries, so he needs to do a better job of taking care of himself, eliminating how many times he gets hit, and him becoming a better passer will prolong his career. The DJ Moore, Justin Fields connection, man, is going strong throughout training camp up to this point for the Chicago Bears, man. So if you're a Bears fan, 
Give me a bear down in the comment section down below, man, because Justin Fields and DJ Moore, they're throwing down right now. They've been so dominant that there hasn't been a single cornerback that's been able to slow this duo down. Now, there's been some moments where they've had a couple of pass breakups and Justin Fields has thrown a couple of interceptions. As a matter of fact, he's thrown a couple of interceptions over the last couple of practices after starting his first three practices mistake free but that's what comes with training camp you want your young quarterback to make the mistakes in training camp versus making them during the season I think that Justin Fields and DJ Moore they definitely are showing a lot of great things so far throughout training camp and I expect this to continue not just throughout training camp in the preseason but you most definitely can expect to see this replicated on Sundays come to start off the regular season man Y'all are really sleeping on Justin Fields. The fact that he now has a true number one wide receiver, y'all do not know what y'all are about to unleash, man. Let's give a training camp update on the Baltimore Ravens offense because a lot of people are really interested in trying to understand how this offense is going to look with new offensive coordinator Todd Munkin. And first of all, let's start off talking about LaMarvelous. LaMarvelous so far in training camp has been lights out. His accuracy has made noticeable improvement, and he was already a pretty good passer, a better passer than what most people give him credit for. And the reason why his passing has really stood out this training camp is because, surprise, surprise, he actually has some legitimate wide receivers to throw the football to. And surprise, surprise, OBJ is a flowers are some of the biggest standout players from training camp for Baltimore up to this point. OBJ, he's looked really good. This dude looks as good as ever, ever since he first got traded to the Cleveland Browns. This looks like a new OBJ. This doesn't look like the OBJ that you've seen over the last three years, even though he was really good when he was on the Rams. But OBJ looks faster. He looks healthier than ever. This dude is still a fantastic route runner. He was running up Marlon Humphrey. I mean, OBJ has been really good for the Baltimore Ravens, but Zay Flowers, he may be the best receiver on the roster, according to multiple reports that are coming out of training camp. Peter King considered Zay Flowers to be the greatest rookie wide receiver that he's ever seen participate in training camp. I mean, Zay Flowers is putting on an absolute show. Outside of Lamar Jackson, it's the Zay Flowers show up there and be more. And he has a nickname. His nickname isn't Zay anymore. His nickname is Joystick. And that's what he's been looking like out there. After he gets the ball, after the catch, this dude puts his foot in the ground. He do-do, do-do, do-do. And that's something that really stood out to me about Zay Flowers. And my comp for Zay Flowers was a lesser talented version of Antonio Brown. I feel like Antonio Brown has a little bit more speed and athleticism in his game. He has the ability to go up and get those jump balls, but Zay Flowers is no slouch. I feel like he can be 90 or 85% of what Antonio Brown was during his peak, and that would be really good. And Zay Flowers, man, this dude is a fantastic route runner and a great separator. In training camp, it hasn't really been too many cornerbacks that have been able to lock this dude up. And he's been going against some of the better cornerbacks on the team, which is a plus. 
Zay Flowers, I expect him to be the best rookie wide receiver in the NFL this year. He's playing with Lamar Jackson. Him and Lamar Jackson have also been doing a lot of training with each other down in South Florida. Zay Flowers, man, this dude is going all so far through our training camp. And a couple of days ago, he caught two red zone touchdowns. And while we're on the topic of the red zone, the red zone offense has looked vastly improved. Last year, the Baltimore Ravens were one of the worst teams in the NFL in red zone conversion percentage. They didn't score touchdowns in the red zone too often. So for how they look up to this point in training camp, it's been a massive improvement. And the two tight ends, Mark Andrews, Isaiah Likely, have really stood out on that area of the field. Mark Andrews, he's standing out on himself or on his own due to the fact that him and Lamar Jackson have the most familiarity with each other. And when OBJ and Zay Flowers had a practice when they weren't on the field, Mark Andrews was Lamar's guy. But people are really sleeping on Isaiah Likely. And my guy, NMD Sports, brought this up to me a couple of um, nights ago when I was on one of his live streams. And people really are forgetting about Isaiah Likely. This dude had a really good rookie season for a tight end standard. He's an incredible athlete, really good after the catch. Not only does he have good speed for a tight end, but he's way more elusive after the catch than what you may think with a guy whose position is labeled as a tight end. Isaiah likely is one of the more underrated players that not too many people are talking about that has been performing really well throughout training camp. And I think it was a good time to go ahead and give him some recognition here. And not only was Isaiah likely looking really good, but undrafted rookie for agent out of ECU, Kian Mitchell, has impressed as well. He has been really active. In the passing game, he's looked really explosive, really fast, and maybe he ends up taking a roster spot from Justice Hill. How long has Justice Hill been on the roster? And what really does Justice Hill really bring to the Ravens? He hasn't really been used that much, and when he's been on the field, he hasn't really done anything. So maybe Keaton Mitchell, if he keeps this up, him and Justice Hill could be competing for being one of the last running backs on the roster. But I think realistically, even if Keaton Mitchell doesn't make the roster, I expect him to at least be on the practice squad with eventually being moved up to the active roster some point throughout this season because the special teams coach also has said that they have experimented with having him being a returner when it comes to returning punts and kicks. So keep your eyes out for Keaton Mitchell, undrafted rookie for agent running back out of ECU. And then lastly, we got to talk about the position battle when it comes to left guard. Malisala Lalulu, or Laulu, I can't get the other part right, but he's been getting first team reps at left guard. This has been expected. He had a really good mini camp and a really good OTA performance. John Harbaugh was raving about him in the interview that he did with the 33rd team, and he's been raving about him to the media. He was a six-round pick out of Oregon. He has a lot of versatility. He can play offensive tackle, guard, anywhere you need him to play on the offensive line, he can fit in, and 
It sounds like he's been really productive, and this dude is a fantastic athlete, man. Like, he's 6'5", 317 pounds, but this dude can move, and he's really powerful. He is the definition of a bulldozer. This dude's coming at you. He's putting you on your you-know-what. Really love Malusala Lalulu. Really good athlete. Really great size. He's a little bit unpolished. But that's something that can be improved. The Ravens love those big, athletic, strong, powerful offensive guards. And it makes sense why they ended up moving him from tackle to guard. Because you want to see with how well he moves and the size that he has and the strength that he has, what he can do at that position. So this is my Baltimore Ravens training camp update on the offense. Let me know if you guys have some additional updates on the offense that I might have missed, that I left out. You know, I miss a lot of details. Some of you guys may have been in attendance for the Ravens practice. So if you are or you have been, let me know some observations that you have made about the Ravens offense and how it's looked so far in training camp in the comment section. Los Angeles Rams outlook for the 2023 NFL season, man. It doesn't look like this team is going to do too much this year. And I'm kind of a little bit higher on the Rams than 95% of people out there. You see, I'm one of those people that believe even though the Rams got a not great roster, that they have a good enough team that with Sean McVay being the head coach, he should be able to elevate this team to at least being a 6-7, maybe 8-win team that could potentially snick into the playoffs as a seven seed if they end up finding a way to win eight games which is definitely possible because you do still have your main core guys Jalen Ramsey is gone but you got Aaron Donald still you got Matthew Stafford at quarterback when he's able to stay healthy and you do still have Cooper Cup one of the best receivers in the league so as long as those three guys can stay healthy and you got Sean McVay as your head coach this year I expect the Rams to be competitive and the good amount of the games that they play now, I don't think they're going to be able to hang around in every single game they play, especially against some of the better teams in the NFL, because even though good coaching can help you overachieve and exceed expectations, at the same time, when you're going against teams that not just have good coaching, just like you do, but have better rosters, more times than not, the better team with just as good coaching as you ends up winning. The LA Rams, they're going to need a lot of rookies to step up. They potentially could be starting seven to eight rookies come week one of this year's NFL season, which is absolutely insane. And they have so many rookies on this roster. Not just that they draft a lot of guys in the draft, but they signed a lot of undrafted rookie free agents. The Rams this season, I don't think they're going to be bad enough to tank for Caleb Williams or even get Drake May unless they have injuries to their core guys and Matthew Stafford goes down. But if Stafford stays healthy and their other core players stay healthy, I don't think they're going to be bad enough to get a Drake May or a Caleb Williams. Now, I'm hoping personally that you suck this year because I would love to see Caleb Williams go to LA and play with Sean McVay. And the reason for that is because I'm a fan of the NFL first. I'm a Steelers fan second. I love rooting for quarterbacks who are really talented to go to good situations so they can succeed. And imagine Sean McVay, pretty much one of the greatest offensive minds in recent history, 
getting his hands on one of the greatest quarterback prospects since Andrew Luck. That would be absolutely ridiculous. And Caleb Williams may be the greatest quarterback prospect in NFL history. Imagine if he's able to stay in the LA area and not really have to make too many adjustments, just a couple of slight moves down the street, and he can be quarterbacking for the LA Rams. Do you not know how dope that would be? Do you not know how crazy the Rams' future would be if they get their hands on Caleb Williams, bro? Like, within the span of two, three years after drafting Caleb Williams, the LA Rams could eventually be what the Kansas City Chiefs are right now, a potential dynasty. That's how good Caleb Williams is, and Think about how good he could be if he goes to Sean McVay, fam. So if you're a Rams fan, I think you should more be hoping for your team to get Caleb Williams versus hoping for them to make it to the playoffs. Because going to the playoffs, yes, it feels good as a fan to say, yeah, my team made the playoffs, but it doesn't really do too much for you in the future if you go to the playoffs and you just get smacked around in the wild card round which we know is most likely going to happen because the Rams don't have the roster to make a deep playoff run and even if you're an overly optimistic fan you would admit that the Rams pretty much have no chance to win the Super Bowl this year so what's the point of going to the playoffs and missing out on the opportunity to come away with one of the greatest quarterback prospects ever I'd rather be terrible for a year get Caleb Williams, and then be able to rebuild and get my roster back to par in a year or two and start competing for championships again. And do you guys think that the Super Bowl that the Rams won in 2022 was worth it, considering where they are? I think it was. I think that the Rams making the decision to go all in for a Super Bowl was the right move. It's just that, you know, eventually you were going to have to reload and rebuild eventually. Just like Kansas City, the problem with Kansas City is that they weren't in cap hell because Kansas City actually drafts really well. And when you don't really have a lot of draft picks, since the Rams pretty much didn't really value them like that because they used them to trade for other players, you don't really do a good job of building for the future. So even though the Rams did a great job of building for the now, they didn't really build for the future. They didn't really have a plan after they won the Super Bowl last year. And this offensive line is a huge concern. You don't know how good your play is going to be from your interior offensive linemen. And when you look at this defense, we don't know who's going to be their second best pass rusher outside of Aaron Donald. We don't know who the hell is going to be playing linebacker, who the hell they got playing cornerback, safety. It's just a complete mess. Raheem Morris, like, I wonder what he's going to be able to do with the talent that he has on his defense because he kind of has nothing to work with outside of Aaron Donald, honestly. So the Rams, they just aren't a good team. They got three key players and Sean McVay. And if those guys stay healthy, I don't think they're going to win any less than six games. But if they have a couple of injuries, this could be a very long season. Is the run game going to improve? Because this is a big year for Cam Akers, who is going to be eligible for an extension. And he was really good during the near end of last season. And he kind of started to have a reawakening from what he used to be during his rookie year. During his rookie year, he was really good until he suffered that injury, and then he hasn't really looked the same. So could this finally be 
Cam Akers breakout year because they do have a really talented rookie behind him that they draft out of the Ole Miss and Zach Evans who could be his potential replacement and Zach Evans is a beast this dude has a lot of similarities to Alvin Kamara really explosive really strong he's good at the contact so if Cam Akers struggles this year look out for Zach Evans but overall when I think about the LA Rams and my outlook on them for the 2023 NFL season I think they're going to be a middle-of-the-pack team at best. And I do think the LA Rams winning six games will make them a middle-of-the-pack team with how good their coaching will have to be for that to happen. But I think if you're a Rams fan, you should probably be hoping for you being able to be in a position to get Kayla Williams. Now, you hope that that doesn't involve you having to trade away Aaron Donald or any of your key assets. Matthew Stafford gets injured again. You sit him, start Stetson Bennett, who could be a really great backup for you. See what he has, and then you go ahead and you drive Caleb Williams, Drake May, whoever is available. But there's so much talent in next year's quarterback class. You got Quinn Ewers, Joe Milton, Michael Penix, Bo Nix. There's a lot of talent. If Matthew Stafford ends up retiring or the Rams want to move on from him and go in a younger direction... This would definitely be a very good upcoming draft to do so. But for this season, I think that there's a good chance they could be what the Giants and the Seattle Seahawks were last year. And maybe they can find a way to sneak in as the seventh seed in the NFC. But realistically, I have them winning six games this year. I don't think they're going to be that good. The reason why I can't see them making a run like the Seahawks or the New York Giants and what they did last year is because their schedule is super tough. And even if they do pull off a couple of upsets, like it's going to take a hell of a coaching job for Sean McVay to pull off those upsets, even with Aaron Donald, Cooper Cup, and Matthew Stafford, because they're going against some of the better teams in the NFL this year. And plus, you're in a division where you're playing two of the best teams in the NFC and the Seattle Seahawks and the San Francisco 49ers twice. So let me know what you guys think about the LA Rams going into the 2023 NFL season. I was supposed to talk about this for a while now, but I didn't think I was going to keep seeing a lot of people saying that Michigan is better than Georgia. And Michigan is not better than Georgia. And let me tell you guys why. Look, I get that you are really concerned with Carson Beck at quarterback because you don't really know what he has in him because we haven't really seen a lot of him. We haven't seen Carson Beck go and get a big win on the road against a rival. And it is fair to say that J.J. McCarthy and Michigan have the advantage over Georgia in the quarterback department. And when it comes to the offensive line, I mean, it's either or, either Michigan, you can say, has a better offensive line than Georgia. You can say Georgia has a better offensive line than Michigan. I don't think either one is a wrong answer, but everything else, I think, obviously favors Georgia. Georgia has better receivers. I think they're better up front on the defensive line than what Michigan is. Like, Michigan has some really good defensive linemen, but the defensive linemen that Georgia recruits are different compared to anybody else in college football, fam. Like, they are recruiting monsters. They are recruiting 300-plus guys who run 4-8-2s. Does Michigan have a Jalen Hemothy Carter on their roster? No, they don't. 
Do they have a Jordan Davis at 330 pounds running 4-8-2 on their roster? No, they don't. Now, they got some pretty athletic players up front, but they don't have the kind of X-Men and the kind of mutants that Georgia has. And let's just be honest about this. When you think of Michigan, what do you think about in terms of their offensive identity? They're a diet version of Georgia. You ever go to Walmart and you go to the cereal aisle and you see the Fruit Loops and then right next to the Fruit Loops, you got the off-brand great value Fruit Loops. That's what Michigan kind of is when I think about them. I think they are a great value brand of Georgia, which is why I can't consider them to be better than the Georgia Bulldogs. And I understand that they have a lot of talent coming back. Jim Harbaugh is really excited about this team. He called this the best team that he's ever had. And he thinks that he has 22 players that are good enough to get drafted. But even though he has one of his most talented teams, I think you can make the same argument for another team and their same conference who I think they need to be more worried about rather than focusing on Georgia and making practices dedicated towards focusing on beating Georgia. And they need to make sure that they can extend their winning streak over Ohio State to three because Ohio State has a lot of motivation going into this year. And I think that they take great offense to Michigan dedicating a practice day to beating Georgia and not focusing on them. Really? Like Ohio State's roster is just as good as what Michigan is. For all you Michigan fans who say, man, we got a lot of guys who are going to get drafted next year, so does Ohio State, fam. JTT is going to be a potential first-round pick. You look at whoever they have at quarterback, I'm not worried about it. Marvin Harrison Jr., Emeka Abuka, both locks to be first-round picks in next year's draft. They got some really good offensive linemen. They're stacked on defense. It's just a matter of if Jim Knowles is going to be able to have that defense playing up to the level of talent that they have. Tommy Eichenberg at linebacker, who is probably the best linebacker in college football. Like, I don't get why people are trying to say Michigan is better than Georgia when I don't even think they're better than Ohio State. And even if you do think that Michigan is better than Ohio State, it's only really because of the quarterback situation and the fact that you have more experience and more proven productivity out of your quarterback than whatever Michigan is going to be throwing. Well, compared to whatever Ohio State is going to be throwing out there at QB this year. I don't think that Michigan is better than Georgia because they don't have the receivers that Georgia has. Georgia, even though they aren't a school that's known for pumping out NFL wide receivers left and right, they got some really good receivers on their roster this year. They got Dominic Lovett out of the transfer portal from Missouri. He was one of the best receivers in the transfer portal from this cycle. And then you got Lad McConkie returning. You got Brock Bowers, arguably the greatest tight end in college football history. There are plenty of weapons on this Georgia offense. And if you want to beat Georgia, you're not going to beat them with the ground and pound mentality that Jim Harbaugh has. You trying to be more physical than Georgia plays right into the strengths of Georgia. Georgia wants you to try to beat them up up front. With those 300 plus guys they got running 4-8-2, they rather you do that then you try to throw the football on them because then you kind of make things a little bit more difficult. If you want to try to play bully ball with Georgia, they love that. Because I promise you, you're not going to win trying to play bully ball with Georgia. If Michigan 
whoever plays Georgia, I promise you, they're not going to obliterate Georgia up front the way they do Ohio State. And you see, when it comes to Michigan, they don't have the kind of team that Ohio State has to really give Georgia a legitimate challenge, in my opinion. If you want to beat Georgia, you got to have three things. You got to have the ability to be balanced on offense, a great quarterback that can make NFL-level throws, which J.J. McCarthy has shown the ability to do, but can he do it consistently? And three, you got to have wide receivers who can challenge Georgia's secondary. Georgia has the best secondary in college football. Just because they lost Keely Ringo doesn't mean that this secondary got worse. Keely Ringo was a liability. And any Georgia fan that really watches the Bulldogs will agree with that. And anybody who really watched college football last year, who really understands the game of football, would know that losing Keely Ringo isn't really that big of a loss. This is going to be still one of the best secondaries in college football. And we've seen at times when Michigan has been unable to run the football and they've had to win games throwing the football, that isn't really their strong suit. Do we not forget what happened to Michigan against TCU, a team who they were supposed to beat in the semifinals round, who everybody considered a lock to make it to the national championship? J.J. McCarthy really struggled against TCU secondary. And if J.J. McCarthy struggles against TCU, why wouldn't he struggle against Georgia? And you also got to understand that Michigan doesn't have the talent at receiver that Georgia has. And Michigan, overall, from a recruiting standpoint and the recruiting rankings, they don't have anywhere of the blue chip talent that Georgia has. Georgia has one of the highest blue chip ratios in all of college football. Michigan recruits at a high level, but they don't recruit at an insanely elite level that Georgia does. So Georgia, just based off recruiting and time alone, they're going to have the better team. Now, obviously, recruiting rankings don't mean everything. They're not the end-all, be-all. Just because you recruit better than your opponent doesn't mean you're necessarily going to beat them all the time. But normally, the team that has the better recruiting classes with more talent and has great coaching normally wins these kinds of matchups. But what makes Michigan so interesting is because they are really good at player development. Jim Harbaugh does an insane job at developing the players that they get out of high school. But when you're going against Georgia, it's a different animal. And I'm not SEC biased. I'm one of those people that can come on here and tell it how it is. But I don't think Michigan is better than Georgia. I don't even think they're better than Ohio State. And even if you want to make that argument for them being better than Ohio State, it really is only because the experience that they have at QB with J.J. McCarthy and whoever Ohio State throws out there being unproven. But I don't think Michigan really is a better team than Georgia. And if Michigan was to play Georgia today, I think that they would get their feelings hurt. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not saying that Georgia would completely dominate Michigan the way they did but the last time they played but I'm pretty confident that they would beat Michigan at least by two touchdowns a lot of people are really sleeping on Carson Beck I don't get this whole narrative oh he's unproven like you act like Carson Beck is a two-star didn't Georgia just win back-to-back -back national championships with Stetson Bennett who was what a walk-on and you mean to tell me that they can't win their third straight title with somebody who is one of the highest rated quarterbacks coming out of his recruiting class being the dog from the 904? 
I think a lot of people need to go do some research and go do their homework on Carson Beck. Because some of y'all are really doubting Georgia because of Carson Beck. And that's one of the dumbest things you can do. Georgia recruits the best players in the country. They're not lacking in quarterback, especially when it comes to talent. And even then, Carson Beck is way more talented than Stetson Bennett. Everybody's not going Stetson Bennett is. Well, Georgia won a championship with him and he wasn't that talented, okay? So you mean to tell me they improve that quarterback, get a more talented quarterback with a way stronger arm, and yet some reason quarterback is just a weakness for them? I think instead of calling quarterback a weakness for Georgia, we should just say it's a little bit of a question mark. Even though it shouldn't, we should give Georgia the benefit of a doubt that they're going to have a seamless transition from Stetson Bennett to Carson Beck because of they're Georgia. They don't rebuild, they reload. And they recruit really well like quarterback. Their backup is Brock Vandergriff. He probably could start on a handful of teams this season in the Big Ten. He was also highly touted coming out. I don't think quarterback is the sole reason for what makes Michigan better than Georgia. What is Michigan better at at any position than Georgia going into this season? They're not better at receiver. I think their offensive lines are just about equal. If you look up the best offensive lines in college football, either Georgia or Michigan are going to be number one. Whoever isn't number one is without a doubt going to be number two. Now, if you want to give the edge to Michigan's offensive line, okay, cool. Even though the gap between Michigan and Georgia's offensive lines are not that big. Georgia has great depth too. They get a starter injured and this next man up. Their defensive line is better. And you Michigan fans can argue with that, fight me on that all you want to, but you guys remember what the hell you walked into when you got mollywhopped by Georgia in a college football playoffs a couple of years ago. Their defensive line is different, bruh. It really is different. I don't think a lot of people who follow the Big Ten understand the kind of animals that Georgia recruits down south, bruh. They are recruiting metahumans. Now, Michigan has had their fair share of freaks. Rashawn Gary was a freak, and you got some freaks on the defensive line, but you don't have a whole entire defensive line with cyborgs like Georgia does. Look at the recruiting class right now. Look at their offensive lines and their defensive lines. They got guys on the offensive line that are like 6'7", 300 and something plus, running insane 40 times with crazy athleticism and upside. Georgia recruits monsters. They recruit creatures of havoc up front. And I'm trying to tell you Michigan fans, like, y'all really say y'all want Georgia until you get Georgia and you come to the realization that, hey, like, we need to change some things around because we're not equipped to beat Georgia until you can get better receivers and get better production out of your wide receiving core. You're not going to beat Georgia. When's the last time? Georgia lost the game because the team was just more physical than them. I can't remember the last time that shit happened. Even when Alabama upset Georgia in the SEC championship game a couple of years back. It took a historical performance out of Bryce Young and it had a good group of wide receivers. The quarterbacks that have had their best performances against Kirby Smart's defense have been Joe Burrow, and C.J. Stroud. And you know what they've all had in common? They had elite receivers who they were throwing the football to. 
Marvin Harrison Jr., Julian Fleming, Emeka Abuka, Justin Jefferson, Jamar Chase, Terrence Marshall. Does Michigan have that kind of talent at receiver? Because you're not just going to ground and pound Georgia into oblivion. Because I promise you, if you're a Michigan fan... And you go out to a Georgia fan or you go out to Kirby Smart and you were to talk some trash to Kirby Smart and say, Michigan is going to beat y'all because we're going to ground and pound y'all off front. You know what Kirby Smart's going to do? He's first of all going to tell you to come on now, dog. Come on, man. And then he's going to laugh at you. He's going to say, okay, try to try to ground and pound us to the ground all you want to and see how far that gets you what's the last time georgia ever got manhandled up front by somebody this is michigan's identity michigan's identity is being tougher than you up front we're going to bully you to the ground and there's nothing that you're going to do about it you see i think michigan is a good matchup for ohio state they always get the best of ohio state over the last couple of years for a reason because ohio state isn't equipped to handle that kind of physicality but for some reason ohio state is a better matchup and a more difficult matchup for georgia you want to know why because i know where you michigan fans are about to go georgia narrowly lost to ohio state by a missed field goal so if they can barely escape ohio state what makes you think that they're so better than michigan jt because ohio state's team is constructed differently their scheme is constructed differently from you you see, what a lot of you people fail to understand is that football is also about matchups. It's also about schematics. And Ohio State has everything that you need to challenge Georgia and give them a competitive game because they're not a one-trick pony. You're not going to beat Georgia trying to ground and pound them to the ground because that's not going to work. You're not going to out-physical Georgia. You have to be able to be balanced and you have to beat them on the outside, on the perimeter. And if you can't do that, you're not going to have a shot at beating Georgia, which is something that I don't think Michigan really has. Now, I'm going to reiterate this one last time. I'm not saying that Michigan will get ran out the building by Georgia. If Michigan and Georgia play today on a neutral field, I think Georgia wins by at least 14. And if they were playing on the road at Michigan and Ann Arbor, I think that they would still beat Michigan by 10 points. Georgia is the best team in college football. I keep seeing a good amount of people, not a lot of people, but there's a good percentage of people out there who consider Georgia to be the number one team in college football going into this season, which I think is highly disrespectful. Georgia is coming off their back-to-back -back national championship win. They deserve to be ranked as the number one team in college football. And if you don't have them as your number one team in college football, I think you're being a tad bit disrespectful to what Kirby Smart and Georgia has done over the last couple of years. To be the man, you have to beat the man. And Michigan hasn't done anything to deserve the right to even be mentioned in the same category as Georgia. Until Michigan can show us that they have what it takes to win a college football playoff game and actually be able to live up to all this hype and expectation, I don't want to hear anything else about them being better than Georgia, whether or not. Prove it to me on the field. You can make fun of Georgia's cupcake schedule all you want to, but one thing about Georgia is that anytime they have to get up for a big game, they always are ready. You can 
Laugh at their schedule all you want to, but look what they did to Oregon week one. Look what they did to TCU for all you people who want to say, well, Georgia almost lost to Ohio State. Well, Georgia obliterated TCU 60 to 70, and you guys lost to them. You guys lost to the same team that got pasted and got their blood drawn all over the field by Georgia. But yeah, you think you're a better team than them? Where do you have the advantage at over Georgia? Where? Other than quarterback, where's the advantage? I love your running backs. Okay, I'll give you the advantage at running back. I ain't gonna lie. I kind of did forget that y'all got Blake Corman, Donovan Edwards. All right. Cool. But still, are you going to be able to have those guys go crazy against Georgia with how stout they are against the run? Like, when's the last time you can remember Georgia just getting absolutely shredded on the ground by somebody? It's been a while. Michigan style is really equivalent to Georgia's. And that's why I don't think they're going to be able to beat Georgia. You're not going to beat Georgia trying to play bully ball. And that's what Jim Harbaugh's philosophy is. They want to bully you. They're going to be more physical than you. And you're not going to do that to Georgia. Georgia is just Michigan cranked up a thousand times. TCU, when they were getting blown out at halftime after one touchdown, Sonny Dykes, they had a camera cut to him on the sideline, and he was going, wow. You want to know why Sonny Dykes was going, wow, when they were getting blown out against Georgia? Because he did not know the kind of talent and athleticism that Georgia had until he actually seen it up close. The kind of guys that they have on that defensive line are different. They recruit a different kind of athlete on the interior. Michigan, you guys recruit really good interior offensive linemen and defensive linemen, but they don't have the kind of athleticism that Georgia has. Georgia has the size, the athleticism, the power, the speed, and the skills. I think Michigan is more of those teams that is more power than they are finesse. And that's what a lot of people have misunderstood about Georgia. You see, Georgia can beat you ground and pound. They can out-physical you, but they also can beat you throwing the football through the air like what they showed against Ohio State. Michigan is not a better team than Georgia. And, you know, I had to get this off my chest because I didn't really plan on talking about this because I didn't think it was a lot of people out there that really were ranking Michigan over Georgia, but... I heard Colin Coward say that Michigan was a better team than Georgia. I saw a couple of rankings on Twitter that came out that had Michigan being better than Georgia. Like, I just had enough of the disrespect, bruh. Like, I really don't think some of you Big Ten fans truthfully understand how good Georgia is. You guys just try to root for Michigan because you just want the SEC dominance to stop. Listen, like... There's a team out there that has a great shot at beating Georgia in the Big Ten. And I think it's Ohio State, not Michigan. They got a better team that's more equipped to go up against Georgia and have success. It's the reason why Ohio State came a field goal shy or one point shy of upsetting Georgia and beating them and making it to the national championship versus what you did the last time you played Georgia and got embarrassed on national television. The Wolverines are not better than the Bulldogs. And I hope we get to see Michigan and Georgia in the national championship. So once again, everybody can find out why Georgia reigns supreme.
This program is on a different level on college football right now. You may think that you recruit monsters up front, but you haven't seen nothing yet compared to Georgia. Be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And when it happens, it might not be what you expect. What's really confusing to me is how people say Shadura Sanders is going to struggle at Colorado because he ain't going against those HBCU defenses anymore. He's going against way better defenses. Yeah, like the Pac-12 was this conference that was full of all these elite defenses, even though there are three best teams going into this season who people think have a chance of making it to the college football playoffs this year, all had horrible defenses. Oregon's defense sucked last year. Washington's defense sucked last year. USC's defense sucked last year. And you mean to tell me that Shadur Sanders is going to struggle against these almighty Pac-12 defenses? Cut the crap. You're hating. You really are hating if you think... That Shadur Sanders, a guy at Jackson State, who in his final season, right, completed 70% of his passes for 40 touchdowns to six interceptions, is going to struggle in the Pac-12? You're tripping. And you're tripping hard. When's the last time we've seen a quarterback have this level of dominance in the FCS and just completely struggle and fall apart in the FBS? Cam Ward, the current quarterback for Washington State, He transferred last season from Incarnate World, and he was really good for Washington State last year. Do you remember a guy named Vernon Adams who used to play for Oregon? He was the first quarterback to lead an FCS team to an upset victory over a top 25 ranked opponent in the FBS when Eastern Washington had upset Oregon State years ago. He transferred from the FCS to the FBS, and he was pretty good. If you're a really good football player, it doesn't matter where you go, you're going to ball out anywhere. And plus, when has Shadur Sanders ever struggled when his pops has been on the sideline? Deion Sanders is Shadur Sanders' good luck charm in a sense. And they got a really good offensive coordinator and Sean Lewis. Sean Lewis is one of the best offensive coordinators in college football. Do you guys not remember the offenses that he was putting up at Kent State? Kent State had the best offense in college football a couple of years ago. And they got a very talented group of wide receivers too. Travis Hunter, Xavier Weaver, Jimmy Horn Jr. This is one of the best receiving cores in the Pac-12 this year. Shadur Sanders, I promise you, is not going to have any problem dominating these Pac-12 defenses, bro. The Pac-12 is not a conference that's full of defensive juggernauts. This is not the Big Ten, and it's not the SEC. The Pac-12 doesn't do a great job at playing great defensive football. As a matter of fact, it's kind of the modern version of what the Big 12 used to be. It's just all offense, very seldom defense. There were really only three teams in this conference last year that had a great defense. Washington State and Oregon State and Utah at times. And that was about it. And even Utah's defense was inconsistent in certain moments. So how is Shadur Sanders going to struggle against the almighty Pac-12 defenses that most of these teams didn't even have last year? Washington, Oregon, Utah, USC are favorites to win this conference this year, and none of those defenses really look all that great this year. 
On paper, they do. But you don't know if those defenses are really going to improve. So how is Shadura Sanders going to walk into Colorado and struggle against a conference that doesn't have any phenomenal defenses? You sound like a hater. You know what you're doing? You're drinking that gate. You're drinking that hater rate. You need to put that hater rate down. Now, I tell you guys this every single day. That hater rate is not good for your lungs. It's not good for your chest. Get that hate out your heart because that's really what you're doing. When is the last time we've seen a quarterback dominate an FCS and this completely fall off the cliff and the FBS, man? You're hating. You don't have any logical evidence that shows that Shadura Sanders is going to struggle. And before you say, JT, you got no evidence that Shadura Sanders is going to dominate. Yes, I do. What he did at Jackson State. It doesn't matter the level of competition. The dude what Shadura Sanders did is really impressive. Anytime you can have a touchdown interception ratio of 40 to 6 at any level, you're a dude. You're a dog. Shadura Sanders is projected to be a potential first-round pick. I talked to... uh. I talked to a couple of NFL scouts. I talked to my guy, Artie. I also talked to one of my other homies that I know who's getting into scouting. And they both said that Shadur Sanders is a legitimate NFL draft prospect. He has a really great arm, really underrated athleticism. People think just because he doesn't have great rushing numbers, he's not a great athlete. This dude is a fantastic athlete. This dude's dad is Deion Sanders, prime time. You think Shadura Sanders isn't going to inherit a little bit of that athleticism? You don't think that he inherited a little bit of Deion Sanders' athletic genes in his DNA? Shadura Sanders can run. He has plenty of highlights of him making a lot of big runs in college at Jackson State and during his time at high school. Shadura Sanders, I promise you guys, is going to be perfectly fine at Colorado. He has a great supporting cast, a fantastic offensive coordinator, and his good luck charm, Coach Prime on the sideline. If you think that Shadura Sanders is going to struggle, you're entitled to your opinion, but I think your opinion is rooted in the fact that you don't like Deion Sanders and you just think that Colorado is going to fail because of Deion Sanders because you don't like him for some reason. Shadura Sanders didn't show anything at Jackson State that showed that he was going to struggle playing more difficult competition. And Colorado doesn't even play a tough schedule. They played TCU, who they went to the college football playoffs last year. But let's not act like TCU doesn't have to replace the majority of their team last year. They have just as many question marks as Colorado. We don't know how good their quarterback play is going to be. We know that Shadur Sanders is better than whoever TCU is going to throw out there at QB. Their wide receiving core is unproven. Their offensive line is unproven. Their defense returns a good amount of talent. But even then, they got some guys that they had to replace in certain areas. So there are just as many concerns with TCU that there are with Colorado. Quarterback shouldn't be one of them. Shadur Sanders, regardless how this season goes, is going to be one of the best quarterbacks in the Pac-12 and one of the better quarterbacks in the SEC, well, in college football. I'm getting a little bit annoyed with this hate train that's coming about Colorado. Like, I get, if you don't think Colorado is going to have a great season, that's understandable. But if you think that Shadur Sanders is going to struggle and he's going to be terrible, I think that you're opinion is rooted in a little bit of hate 
or a little bit of animosity. Maybe Deion Sanders took your girl away from you when y'all went to prom or something like that. I don't know why so many people just kind of have this hate train for Coach Prime in Colorado. For what reason? Why wouldn't you root for a team that didn't win a game that's been awful? Come on, man. This school hasn't had success in how many years? So I don't get the hate train behind the Buffs. I don't get why there isn't a little bit more support for the Buffs to succeed. You got all this hate. Y'all, he's not going to work out. Shadur isn't going to work out. Like, stop the BS, man. Shadur Sanders was a dog at Jackson State. There are plenty of guys who play at HBCUs who got drafted. Yes, he's taking a step up in competition, but he's not going to struggle. I'm getting tired of this, this bullcrap narrative some of y'all try to push, man. Especially on Twitter. Some of y'all Twitter people just need to get a timeout for a second. Y'all just need to get y'all Twitter privileges revoked for a little bit because some of y'all be talking out of y'all you-know-what. That three-letter word that I'm not going to say today because I'm going to keep it PG today since we've already kept it PG for most of the show. But Sir Derrick Sanders struggling at Colorado, I will bet big money that doesn't happen. Sir Derrick Sanders is probably going to be one of the best quarterbacks in the Pac-12 this year. He's not going to struggle. He should dominate against these defenses. These Pac-12 defenses aren't great. They're kind of soft. It's not just the talent standpoint, but it's also a mentality thing. And the mentality of these Pac-12 defenses aren't really all that great. People are excited about the new expanded college football playoffs going to 12 teams next year. And the reasoning that everybody has for why the 12-team college football playoffs is going to be good for the sport is because it's going to create more parity. And let me give you guys a newsflash. It's not. The only thing the 12-team playoffs is going to be is the Big Ten SEC Invitational. And with Oregon, Washington, and USC and UCLA joining the Big Ten, that's probably going to be even more true. And you look at the SEC, same thing's going to happen. And you people already talk about how the committee has SEC bias and how the committee always jerks off the SEC. Well, you think they're not going to get an even more easier path to the playoffs now that they can lose two, maybe three games and still get in? Like Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, Ryan Day, Jim Harbaugh, they're laughing and deep down inside, they're happy that the college football playoffs got expanded because all you did was guarantee those guys a spot at the table. Now, it's more pressure on them to, well, it's less pressure on them to win games now because they can lose two games and still get in because they're ranked in the top 10. You know, I watched a Florida team lose to a JV LSU team with Marco Wilson throwing the shoe that costed the Gators that game ultimately, and they only got knocked down, what, one or two spots? They could have been in Alabama in the SEC championship game that year. I believe that was 2012. And they could have had a legitimate argument to get into the college football playoffs with the losses that they had and losing to a JV LSU team. And you mean to tell me that you think a 12-team college football playoff is going to create more parity? No, well, the G5 schools get a shot. And some of the schools that didn't have a chance now are going to get a chance. And it's going to be a lot like March Madness. College football is not anything like March Madness. It's a completely different sport. 
Yes, we do get a good amount of upsets in college football, but you got to look at the context of how those upsets occur. Majority of upsets occur where you have an underdog team hosting a team that's a favorite, but the underdog team has home field advantage. LSU, they beat Alabama last year where? At home. Same thing when you think about some of the upsets that took place last year in the Pac-12. The Pac-12 had a lot of good teams, but the conference, with the way that it's structured, all those good teams had to end up playing each other. So they ended up beating up on one another. You give teams like Alabama and LSU and Georgia an added opportunity to get into this thing by expanding it, they're doing nothing but laughing at you. Because now you all but did anything but guarantee that they're going to have opportunity to win a championship every single year. You could have a three-loss Alabama team in the college football playoffs that could be the last seed and could win it all. There's not a chance that you're going to find too many G5 schools that are going to be as good as what UCF and Boise State were when people were making the argument for why those teams should be included and, you know, the playoff picture or making it to the national championship in Boise State's case with the BCS era. You see, these G5 schools, the difference between them and the Alabamas of the world are athleticism, speed, and talent. And for those of you guys who say recruiting rankings don't matter, I want you guys to tell me the teams that have had some of the top five recruiting classes over the last couple of years and tell me the teams that have been in the college football playoffs and the teams that have been in the national championship game. You will find out mysteriously that the teams that normally have the best recruiting classes normally make it to the college football playoffs. Alabama has had either the best or second best recruiting class in college football every year since, what, 2018? And where have they been? Georgia, same way. Ohio State, same way. At the end of the day, expanding the college football playoffs does nothing but make it easier for these blue blood programs that already are dominating the sport. So the mindset and the philosophy that people are going about the expanded football playoffs is a little bit odd to me because the way you think this thing is going to play out is going to be completely opposite from what you have in your head. You're thinking that Alabama is going to have a chance of getting upset by Tulane. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. And you can say, JT, you don't know that. Trust me, as long as Nick Saban lives and breathes and he's coaching Alabama football, I strongly doubt Tulane is going to upset Alabama, fam. Alabama is not USC. This is Alabama. Georgia is not going to get upset by Tulane. You saw what happened when we got our Cinderella story in the national championship. TCU was that big Cinderella that everybody was looking for. They got into the playoffs despite losing the Big 12 championship game. And yeah, they did upset Michigan. They did show that they deserved to be in there. But then they got Molly by Georgia. Doesn't that all but do anything but reinforce my point? You see, how often do you see a team like UCF knock off of Alabama when you have a great G5 school playing at their peak? Even when Cincinnati, before they went into the college football playoffs, when they had lost to Georgia in that New Year's Six Bowl game. Yes, it was a close game, but they still lost that game, and Georgia was out, multiple starters.
So it's like a 12-team playoff, the idea sounds good. You know, it sounds good that you get to add more teams because the opportunity for the potential upsets increases when you add more teams. And you get more teams that haven't been into the college football playoffs before that are really talented, that are now going to have an opportunity. But at the end of the day, the teams that recruit the best, the teams that are more talented are still going to rise to the top. Now, there may be a couple of years where occasionally there may be a team that is an underdog and they surprise people, but that's rarely going to happen. And I say that with strong conviction. You see, a lot of people want to make it seem like recruiting rankings don't matter, stars don't matter, but the majority of first-round picks are five and four stars. The, the, the statistics show you everything you need to know. The reason why more three-star guys and lesser-ranked guys get drafted than four and five stars is because not everybody is a four and five star. Being a five and four star is very rare. It's not a club for everybody. It's an exclusive club. You got to get invited to it. And if you're not a five or four star, majority of the guys are three stars and two-star guys or less. And the reason why is because either they don't have the same size or athleticism. There are a reason why certain guys are five-star guys and four-star guys. And you look at a 12-team college football playoffs, it's nothing but the Big Ten SEC Invitational waiting to happen. You thought that the committee was already biased towards Alabama when they had four teams? Now, look at how biased the committee is going to get when Alabama has three losses and they're still in the 12-team college football playoffs and they get thrown in over a team that had maybe one loss. And then you're going to say, oh, we need to expand the 12-team college football playoffs to 32 teams. And all you're going to do is make it even more easier. And a lot of you people disagree with Josh Pates, you know, thinking on this, but I think he's actually right. You see, if the committee already struggles to drop SEC teams in the college football playoff rankings when they lose, then what do you think is going to change with them having the opportunity to put more of them in, more Big Ten teams in? Like, this isn't going to be one of those situations where, oh, everybody has a slice of the pie. Now it's going to be a level playing field. You guys said the same thing about this when the transfer portal ended up becoming what it was. Oh, the transfer portal is going to help even things up because now you can lose some talented players and pick them up and you can build a team through the portal that's just as good as Alabama. And what has happened? Alabama, Georgia, and some of the powerhouse schools in college football have used the transfer portal to their advantage. Y'all said the same thing about NIL. NIL is going to bring more parity to the sport because now Alabama and Tennessee and all of these other big-name SEC schools aren't the only schools that can pay players anymore. And what has Alabama done? They have used that to their advantage. You guys keep overlooking this. Everything that you guys think is going to be a disadvantage towards the schools like Bama, Ohio State, and Georgia, they use as an advantage. The 12-team college football playoffs is nothing different. You guys had this same tune about NIL and the transfer portal, and you got this same tune about the college football playoffs creating more parity. The only thing we're going to get is more playoff matchups featuring Big Ten and SEC opponents. 
And I don't even know if you give an automatic bid to the Pac-12 anymore. That's not even a legitimate Power 5 conference anymore. That's a G5 conference. If we look at the Pac-12 for what they're going to be in 2024, I don't even think they're better than the American. Honestly. So, I, I really got a, a, a hard time understanding the mindset about how expanding the college football playoffs creates more parity. It creates more potential opportunities. And, you know, it creates more opportunities for schools who, like Penn State, haven't been to the college football playoffs because they can't get over the hump. Uh, over teams like Michigan and Ohio State is going to make the road easier for your Tennessees and your Texas A&Ms of the world. And yes, with more teams having the opportunity to make the college football playoffs, it does help them in recruiting because then some recruits, if they commit to the school because they want a chance to compete for championships, they look at Alabama and think that's their only route. What they spend in college football playoffs, you got more options to pick from. You got more teams that can give you that opportunity to go ahead and win a ring. But the teams that are still going to get the best players are going to be the teams that do the better job at developing players and getting them to the NFL and the teams that just have a better overall track record of success. You see, there's a reason why Nick Saban is the greatest coach in college football history. There's a reason why Kirby Smart it's the best coach in college football at this moment because they put the time, work, and effort in. They didn't take any shortcuts. Now college football wants to give other programs shortcuts because they can't get their act right and they can't, you know, get up to the level of Alabama and Georgia other than getting handouts, getting benefits. Alabama and Georgia didn't need benefits. Ohio State and Michigan didn't need handouts, which is why they're going to continue to thrive and why they're going to dominate when the college football playoffs gets expanded, it's a difference when you earn something because when you earn something, that shows that you've proven something about yourself. There's something that stands out about you that puts you in a position to be in the four-team college football playoffs. It's an exclusive club. Not everybody can make it into the playoffs. The best teams get into the playoffs. And regardless of how we go about putting the best teams in, it may be highly controversial, but the best teams still win more times than not. Do they not or do they not? Cincinnati didn't upset Alabama. They got kind of pasted. And this is a Cincinnati team that had a lot of players off that squad who are now in the NFL performing at a really high level, i.e. Sauce Gardner. Desmond Ritter is the starting QB for the Atlanta Falcons. And they still weren't able to give Alabama a competitive game. You people want to see more parity in college football, but... You're letting your feelings and your wishes cloud the actual reality. And what the actual reality of this is going to be is that you just made it easier for the SEC to get more bias into the college football playoffs. You guys get mad because the committee is so biased towards the SEC and the Big Ten. But yeah, you think that the college football playoffs expanding the 12 teams is going to create more parity? When it's just going to make it even more simpler for them to get in? Like that mindset makes no sense. How is that going to create more parity? How? The better, more SEC teams are going to have a crack at getting in and the Big Ten. And even with the auto bids. Who are going to be the at-large bids who get in who don't win their conferences? The teams that weren't able to get into the conference championship because they had an upset loss. Or a team that 
wasn't able to get into the top four because they had an upset loss. So now, instead of making it more complicated, because it's more complicated to get into the college football playoffs with it standing at four teams with one loss or two losses, than it will be with having 12 teams. So it's like, you want, you want to create more parity, but you think expanding the college football playoffs is the best way to do that, giving more conferences opportunities to get different teams in. But yeah, you're not thinking about the fact that you're making it more easier for SEC and Big Ten schools to get in, but yet you complain about the ESPN SEC bias. But you think that the SEC bias is magically going to go away because there's more teams? You don't think that with your mindset of the SEC bias that they aren't going to put more SEC teams in? Come on now, dog. Come on, man. I'm just saying. You guys can call me a hater all you want to, but I think I'm being pretty fair and being pretty factual about this. I think that Nick Saban, Alabama, and Kirby Smart, and even Dabo Sweeney, Dabo Sweeney, what people kind of think is a declining program in a sense. You think that Clemson's falling off. Now the 12-team college football playoffs, you're making it easier for them to get back into it. Crazy. If we would have kept it at four teams, I wonder if Clemson would ever get back to the college football playoffs. But now with it being got 12 teams, there's a great chance that they get back into it. You see what y'all done? You, you see what has happened? You see the problem with this mindset that the college football playoffs is going to create more parity? The only thing you're really doing is ensuring that the best teams in college football have a easier way to get into the playoffs. The best teams are going to win games. I know that the best team doesn't always win, but they win the majority of the times. This is it for this episode of the JT Sports Podcast. I appreciate you guys for tuning in, man. This was a very long episode. This was the longest episode that we've done all offseason, all throughout the summer. But it was necessary because we had a lot of news that came out. I didn't even talk about the Alvin Kamara suspension, but I don't really think we really tripping on that all that much. But it's like, it's a lot of stuff going on in college football. For all my college football people, I did a poll the other night and asked, do you guys think I do a good job of balancing the NFL and college football content? Majority of you guys said yes. Some of you guys said no. But if you're one of those people that said no, then you should love this episode because it was absolutely loaded. With college football topics today, man. The Pac-12 is imploding. It has me really sad. Really hurt. I mean, the Big 12 is getting even better. I mean, shh. But if you haven't already, make sure that you go ahead. Give us a five-star review. Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find the JT Sports Podcast. Rate us five stars if you enjoy. Follow us on all of our social media platforms. Twitter at JT Sports underscore underscore or X, excuse me. Instagram at JT Sports underscore. I'm going to check in with the chat real quick. The good news for the remaining Pac 12 teams, as UCF fan, I've been hearing for years, you go undefeated in G5. Now, oh, man, don't, oh, you messed up for that one. You messed up that one. You, you really messed up for that one. Brendan Tiltman. Man, the Jets, they need them a backup because if Aaron Rodgers go down, they, they definitely are. The Jets should got Teddy Bridgewater for a backup. What's good, Volcano? 
Oh, nobody likely. That's my guy right there. We looking for likely to get on the field and show we have. Yeah, like people sleeping on Isaiah likely. But this is it for this episode of the podcast. I appreciate you guys for tuning in. And I will see you guys Monday with another episode of JT Sports Live.